one of the topics that I spend a crazy amount of time thinking about is building generational wealth in black and brown communities. And about a month ago, I don't even know, I had a Twitter exchange with some amazing people on Twitter about this topic. And what they don't know is I actually got mad (laughs) during the exchange. And I felt like I got mad, but that there was a conversation that needed to to be had around the topic that we needed time to talk about this. So if you two, Julian and Kirsten, could please introduce yourselves and what your project is and what you do, I would love that. And we're going to get, we're going to start talking about building black and brown, specifically black generational wealth and what it means when you're coming from the diaspora versus you've been in the United States and and how that impacts mindset, tools, and resources, and, and just the ability to grow wealth over time. Her name's Kirsten. I'm Kirsten. <laughs> we are content creators, podcasters, hosts, and producers of a video series called Money on the Table, uh, soon to be published authors, uh, but a lot of our stuff can be found at richandregular.com. What's the name of your book? Do we have that now? Could you share it? Yeah, it's called Cashing Out, Win the Wealth Game by Walking Away. How can we buy your book, by the way? It's on pre-sale now, so we can send you a link that you can put in the show notes. Um, and it is uh, live June 14th, live, like it's a show. It will be on shelves <laughs> June 14th, <laughs> 2022. Yeah. Perfect. Okay. I, I definitely want to shout that out. So if I didn't actually share this question with you when we when I sent over the prep questions, but I do want to ask how did you get into this space and why is it even important to you? The space meaning personal finance. Sure. Um, I think like a lot of people, I started out, uh, well, I should say it started with me um, because I was just an enthusiast in the personal finance um, and the financial independence space. I spent a lot of years uh, on the outside looking in while working in marketing and thinking about all of the different ways that I might be able to do some of the cool things that I saw uh, people doing online uh, at the time. Uh, And slowly but surely, I said, you know what, I think I want to dip my toe in it. And so I started uh, a blog or we started a blog back in 2017. Um, And then slowly that just became a core part of our life. Um, And essentially what we do is we focus on telling stories about money, uh, because we believe that that's actually the most impactful way of changing people's behaviors or introducing them to topics and actually making it stick. And so part of that is through our personal experience, just having tried to introduce concepts to people uh, in a number of different ways. But a lot of it is also rooted in our professional experience in marketing and business development. And so anytime you're trying to introduce an idea to a group of people, uh, there are certain things that you would want to do. And so um, we find a lot of success in that. And now we're trying to use 
uh, what has become a bit of a passion to help create positive change in the world. Are you guys doing this full-time or is this like in addition to everything else? It is full-time and, and in addition to everything else <laughs> Oh my as God! In, as in parenting and just being an adult. But yeah, we, we do this full-time. I didn't know that. And actually I have a question about that before we get into the heart of the conversation. What has it been like building a, a personal finance brand as people of color, as black people? And what, what's, the reaction been to the content that you share? I know that I love it. I'm by the way, I'm always hungry after I watch your videos. Like it's, <laughs> it's a whole thing, but I, I feel, I feel like your content is a warm hug. I know that's a little cheesy, but, um, I just feel like I've gone to one of my relatives house and we're sitting down and it's just this great experience. So are other people experiencing it in the same way or what what's the feedback been like and what it's what has it been like building a brand that is sustaining you and your family because it's not just you two you've got littles Mm -hmm. yeah yeah it's been a humbling experience and quite honestly we view it as a privilege to be able to do it I think we started our business in this perfect storm of timing where people of color were open to new ways of closing the wealth gap without, you know, relying on traditional institutions and traditional advisors for their advice. And so more of us were turning to the internet, more of us were looking to hear from peers. And it was an honor to be there and to be sharing our story and to have so many people kind of being receptive to it. And since then, it's only grown. Like we are introduced to people every single day that find our content who are arriving at the place where they're ready to change their finances and change their lives. And it's such a reminder of like how big and vast the internet is. We tend to think of like the the size of our reach in terms of how many followers or subscribers we have, but it's so much bigger than that. And you never know, you know, how people find you. We hear the stories about how people have come across our content and we're like, wow, like (laughs) we're just now benefiting from, you know, having created content online for five years, the algorithms and the search engines start to be like, okay, you must be serious. And you start showing up in places where you never actually created content. You're just kind of there as, you know, being referred. So it's, it's been great. And I'm excited that so many black people particularly are interested in finance and are discovering that it is a space and not just something that people do like when they get paid. Uh, (laughs) I like that last sentence there. Um, So we're going to get into it now because this is actually, this is a huge topic. We could literally do, each one of us could write a dissertation on this, do a podcast series. Like this is a huge topic and we are not going to be able to I feel like do it the justice it deserves in the time that we have, but we're going to do our best. So my first question to you is what was the conversation like around money in your house? And before you answer, I do want to um, have you guys answer from the perspective of your, your family's lived experience here. And I point this out to say that Julian is first gen and Kirsten, I believe is not. And then I'm going to also pipe up as well. So if you could share, that would be wonderful. So we didn't really have a ton of conversations about money specifically, but money was 
always there. I grew up in a very secure household and it wasn't a situation where we just couldn't have things. I've always lived in a home. We've always had groceries in the refrigerator. When we went to stores, my mom would do the general, like, don't ask me for nothing. But (laughs) if we did happen to sneak something in the cart, it's not like we didn't have the money to afford it. And so we didn't have very specific conversations about money, its limitations, its constraints, all that stuff. We had a lot of conversations about work, but not about money. And so I grew up with a very jaded view, uh, just not, not as naive as thinking money grew on trees, but thinking that it was not something that I needed to worry about or spend any significant amount of energy on. It was just kind of there. In my experience, it was a, a bit different. Uh, so as you mentioned, I'm first gen. Uh, my entire family uh, on both sides uh, are from the island of Jamaica. And that played a huge part in, in my upbringing. And so naturally that is woven into my experience and some of the early lessons. But I don't know that my early lessons about money are distinctly Jamaican or Caribbean, but I do think some of my uh, just experiences and approach to work um, and I think the sense of urgency might be a bit more unique to me being a first-generation immigrant. Um, But it was really just around things like, you know, understanding, my mom would always say, the value of a dollar, um, you know, hard work uh, in order to get money, the idea of having multiple jobs uh, and that being a badge of honor. Um, And and I think particularly in the Jamaican community, like very much a a badge of honor uh, to the point where it becomes a running joke in the broader uh, sort of scheme of things. But yeah, you know, and I would say the last thing is, is obviously, or at least for me, a lot of attention paid to tithing and the church. And so just keeping in mind that, yes, money was scarce. Money is hard to come by. Those people, as in basically anyone but us, have money. We do not. Mm. Um, but you have to work really, really hard. And even when you do, um, no matter what, you always have to give a percentage back to the church. So those were some of my earliest lessons and memories about money. It's interesting because there's some similarities, but a few differences. So my parents divorced when I was really young, when I was about seven. And so money, the way that it showed up in my home was that there was always a tension around the fact that there wasn't enough. And so the thing that was weird was that my mom was able to access a lot of scholarships for me. So even though there wasn't a lot of money, she was able to really leverage the place that we lived because there were so many resources that I was able to live this like very confusingly good life, even though it was at, it cost my mom a lot of energy and time right? To Uh find all these opportunities, but then she was always working and she, the struggle was real. You know what I mean? Uh Like, I hate, I hate that we have that like financial struggle story that you hear about a lot, but it did factor in heavily in my uh, upbringing. And one of the things that impacted my upbringing financially was that my mom was very worried that I would have a life that was worse than hers or that I would have these experiences that really frightened her. So fear really impacted a lot of the decisions that she made around my upbringing. So I never lived in a bad neighborhood. Why? Because she was afraid that would impact me in some sort of way. You know, you know what I mean? Like uh-huh. where we lived was a, a big deal. 
And so she wanted to make sure that I always lived in the best neighborhood possible, even if it was in a really small place. She wanted me to experience all of the things that other kids do. And so anytime she heard of a, and other kids, meaning really white kids, because there were a lot of white kids, obviously in, in Colorado, anything that she heard about she would ask, is there a scholarship? And then she would apply. And I almost always would get a scholarship because I was a pretty good kid, but I was just one. And side note, people, if you see scholarships, always apply for them because a lot fewer people are applying for them than you think. Yep. Uh, so that's a side note. So she would always apply for all these scholarships. So I had this really weirdly confusing upbringing where I had all these privileges, but then my mom would be working like a dog all the yeah. time. Uh-huh. You know, I am Gen X. There's a little bit of the whole Gen X, like, yeah, I came home and watched Dr. Phil and <laughs> took care of myself and then roamed, you know, roamed the neighborhood with the other kids. There was that, but also my mom just was busy. She was like working all the time. Uh-huh. Yeah. You know? yeah. Same. It was a latchkey kid too. Yes. <laughs> and, um, <laughs> there, I, and it was not good for us. I've just, you guys, it was not good for us to be so free, but that's another, that's a different podcast episode. So um, I do have a question specifically for you, Julian, which is what was the perception in your family of African-American money? What did it seem like people were doing with their money? Like, what was the conversation around that? Is that, is that an awkward question to ask? Um, no. Um, so, so the, the term African-American money is, is a, is a bit awkward because for me specifically, it was so layered. And so you have to keep in mind where I grew up and when I grew up. So I grew up in the 1980s in Brooklyn, New York, which is very different from the Brooklyn that we of see now. Today. <laughs> um, I, I, I think of it or call it the early law and order Brooklyn, New York. <laughs> Okay. Not not the Sex in the City Brooklyn. That <laughs> not people, the twelve dollar ice cream. Not the twelve dollar ice scoop of ice cream, <laughs> right? Um, and so I grew. It was hard, man. And um, but at the time, of course, I didn't know any better. It was it was perfectly fine. But one of the things that we would do, and even as I'm saying this, I'm envisioning like an inner city film. <laughs> but like you know, we'd go up on the roof, right? And we go up to the rooftop of our building, and I could see Manhattan from where I was. And so earlier when I said those people, you know, those meant Manhattan or city people, um, predominantly white people. And my mother worked in a hotel not too far off of Times Square. And I would go to Manhattan uh, to meet her every now and then. And that's really where I would see the vast majority of white people. And they walk fast and they smell different and they look, I'm just being honest, you know what I mean? This is, this is my experience as a child. Um, it's just a completely different and intoxicating feeling being in Manhattan surrounded by working professionals in the 1980s and seeing things like literal briefcases, because that's not something that you would see in Brooklyn. And again, you know, New York is really big. So going to Manhattan is like taking a trip. It's like going somewhere else. It's a completely different world. So all of that to say, my perception of money and wealth was totally different because again, back then you didn't see buildings that tall aside from in Manhattan. Uh, You didn't see working professionals of any color in Brooklyn 
they were predominantly in Manhattan. Uh, and so all of the things like taxi, even taxi cars, like it, that's not something that you would see in Brooklyn. And so my perception of money was that it was like something that was plentiful over there. And mm. by there, I mean like 50 miles away that I could see from my roof. It's like, you know, a, a foreign land. That's where the money is. And where we are is like a literal barren world where nothing grows and there is no prosperity. That's that was my my perception. Oof. Um, <laughs> I should mention that I actually went to college in upstate New York. And okay. so that pre 9-11 New York is a whole different experience than what people are experiencing mm-hmm. now. Mm-hmm. And so as you were describing everything, I was like, I totally get this. Yeah. I totally totally get this um what about imagery of like abandoned buildings and and people jumping on box springs and homeless people like that's real like that's not a figment of someone's imagination now and and quite honestly what makes it even more screwed up is that brooklyn was far from the worst right so the bronx hence the term the bronx is burning was the worst uh brooklyn was actually pretty well off the things that i saw was what was nearly as bad is what some of my um, friends experienced in the Bronx. So all of those things kind of laid the early foundation for how I viewed money as a a kid. When I was in college, it's funny you mentioned the Bronx. I had some wonderful friends, uh, Nuericans, as they would call themselves, right? Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And I um, couldn't afford to go home to Colorado for Christmas. And so they had me stay with them for Christmas for, it was like three weeks. And first of all, Pernil off the hook, best experience ever, but it was culture shock for me. I did not understand New York in general is a lot of culture shock, but I had never, especially the Denver of that time mm-hmm. <laughs> versus it was to this day, you, you can hear me stuttering over my words. Like it was culture shock. And oh. My mom remembers me bringing up, like just talking about the experience because she, she, like everything I described to her was all the stuff she never wanted me to experience. You know what I mean? Uh-huh. And so it was, it was deep. It was deep. I think the better question would be, let's speed up to now, actually. Let's cut out the before times. What has the conversation been like as you guys travel around the U.S. and you have conversations with not only people like myself, but with your your online community, what's the conversation been around building Black wealth? And do you feel like there is a difference in the conversation between the Black immigrant community and the African-American community that's been here? What seems to be the difference in how we're looking at wealth? Or, or is there a difference? I'll answer the first part of the question first, just in terms of what what are the themes that we see when we talk to people across the country. I think the most promising thing for us is that more people recognize the stakes. They realize how high the stakes are for Black wealth and for generational wealth, and they're ready to do something about it. But I think the challenge is that manifests differently based off of people's past. There are some people who feel like they have to play massive amounts of catch up. And so they're taking huge risks and making big sacrifices and just 
going all in with wealth building, usually to the detriment of their mental health, their wellness, their family life. You know, they're just they're willing to sacrifice it to to make up for what they consider to be lost time. And then there's the other people who are kind of like overthinking it because they recognize how high the stakes are, where it's just kind of like, I want to do this, 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 and this. I want to check off all the boxes instead of just like really focusing on a schedule, I mean, on a, on a, on a strategy. And then there's people who are just high earners and feel like that checks the box on solving the issue. So they're high earners. They've got the professional career, doctors, lawyers, you know, VPs at corporations. And so they're not really thinking about the longevity of their money. They're just like, I make enough that this is not an issue. And so all of that, you know, leads to different approaches and advice. But generally speaking, most people understand the stakes. The other theme that we are seeing and that what, you know, we're hoping our book starts to address is that a lot of Black people are starting to become skeptical of the workplace as the means to build wealth. Mm -hmm. And I, I am happy <laughs> that this is finally happening because for a long time we were just doubling down on jobs and career paths and more education to get better jobs and career paths, which of course leads to more debt and more burnout. And so now people I think are more open to the other ways of making income or even supplementing their income from their traditional W-2 job, which leads to a lot of different conversations about, you know, income and pricing and assets and investing and, you know, all, all the all the stuff that we talk about in terms of how to build wealth. And I think it's, um, I'll take a stab at trying to address, I won't say answer the second part of your question. And I think this goes back to the Twitter exchange that we had um, a while back. I believe um, and, and this is partially informed by my past, even though I know we said we're leaving that behind. But again, I grew up in New York City. And so I have spent a lot of time with people of, of let's say, Black American uh, or with a Black American upbringing with a wide variety of people who uh, grew up in different Caribbean islands as well as um, African countries. Uh, and I do believe that there are differences in the messaging that they received as they were raised. And, and there are different levels of urgency, I believe, that are um, taken on by them. And as a result, it shapes the way that they view money, um, entrepreneurship, or hustle, or whatever you want to call it. And so a lot of what I see right now is a, a bunch of, obviously, there's a great deal of struggle. But if you were to actually, I believe, start polling not only just some of the more widely popular voices in the personal finance space, but even just in the online space and in the entrepreneurial space, and you start digging into their backgrounds, uh, even in corporate America and in private organizations, you start to find a disproportionate percentage of people who are African and Afro-Caribbean. Um, and I don't believe that that is a... Um, yeah, I, I don't believe that that's just happenstance, right? I believe that has a lot to do with um, their upbringing, um, the stakes, as I said, the messages that they receive. Now, granted, I didn't receive those messages. So whatever messages they were, were fed um, coming from the Caribbean, you know, those were things that um, I did not have the benefit of receiving. But because I implanted myself into these other communities, I have a large network of mentors, many of who are 
Afro-Caribbean and African who have imparted in these messages and really letting me know what's at stake, what can be done here um, in terms of building wealth. And so um, it's not something that I say from a place of judgment. I say it from a place of deep curiosity. Um, I wish uh, there was a PhD student who would dive into this uh, to either debunk it or prove it right. Um, so a lot of what I'm speaking is coming from you know my own experience, having had thousands of conversations about money with people over the last 10 years. One of the things that I thought about before having this conversation with you is what what was going on? Like, why is it that there seems to be this divergence? And one of the things that I realized is in African-American families, the idea of generational wealth, it's always there. But the way the conversation happens in the past has been very specific around education. Mm-hmm. And it's really funny, or it's really interesting that Kirsten brought this up. She said it very quickly. But before you could get educated and it wasn't that expensive. So you would go to college. And again, for people who aren't aware how you could be unaware of this, I don't know. But for when African-Americans were brought as slaves, one of the key components to keeping them enslaved was keeping them uneducated. So Mm -hmm. education has always been factored very heavily in the growth of knowledge and access and just understanding how the world is and what makes things uh, happen in the way that they do. And what has happened in that education conversation that I've observed, or what hasn't happened, that's a better way to put it. I was told to do what I enjoy, get educated, but do what makes you happy. Because joy, I think, factors heavily in the conversation, conversations that people have with their kids, because they may not have had joy in what they've done. Mm -hmm. (laughs) Um, And I think this is a very American thing. I don't think it's just specific to black people, but we're, we're talking about black people. I actually had this conversation with Harlan Landis for the Plutus Foundation. And I was like, actually, when I was being told to go and get educated, it wasn't go and be a doctor because I have a lot of friends who are first gen and what they were told, it was very specific. Yes. You, you, you need to go be a doctor. Yes. Yeah. Prestige. Yeah. It's not even, it's like, you will always have a job. It's not even prestige. You will always work. Right. Yes. Like it's this prestige and you will always need to go to the doctor. You will always need to get, go to the dentist. You will always need to go to an accountant. You will always need to go to a store. Like it was very, very specific. And in American work culture language at that time, because it's, it's changing. And I want us to talk about that in the next question at the time. And even Harlan said this, cause I was like, Harlan, why would you go into music? He's like, well, I knew I wasn't going to make a lot of money, <laughs> but I would be happy. And so the, this, and he's a white dude. Right. And I was like, this is fascinating to me that we both kind of had the same messaging around career. It wasn't so much that we should go and and do things that are lucrative. It's that we should go and pursue something that would give us joy. And I feel like that's so American in so many ways. I don't even know where to begin with that. Do do you think I'm crazy in this observation? No, I think you're you're absolutely spot on. Um, And and I'm happy that you were actually encouraged to pursue your passions. I I think another way of saying that is that your, your mother and guardians they, they could afford for you to explore 
the things that made you happen as no they couldn't that no they (laughs) couldn't like no it 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 was again it was at a great financial cost and sacrifice for so this is this is my mom's not rich right like she just she the reason why i went to school in new york i'll tell you why I applied to seven schools and I got into six and didn't get into Northwestern. Screw you, Northwestern. Anyway, and um, these were really good schools. The reason why I went to the school that I did was it awarded me the most money. That was it. It wasn't because I had any help or anything. It was they awarded the most money. That's where I ended up going. I literally never saw my school before I got there. Uh So I had, and this is crazy. I got on a train with a steamer trunk which is crazy to me and hilarious. And I got to this city in the north, northern part of, of New York and it's all trees. I'll never forget seeing all those freaking trees. And I'm like, oh my God, there's all these trees. Like it traumatized, like the trees, it's all these trees and then there's water. And um, I figure out how to get to the, the campus. I'm by myself. I just turned 18 because I, I graduated at 17. So I graduated at 17. A month after I turn 18, I'm on my way across the U.S. by myself. And I, and the only reason why I go to the school is because they paid. That was it. And then I got, they paid most of it. And then I got a job at food services so I could afford to eat. That's what I did. And when I got to school, it gets worse. I get to school and instead of someone being like, okay, what's the career that is going to be lucrative and it's going to help you in the long run? The messaging was the same there too. So I initially was really excited about, of all things, going into economics, guys. I wanted to become an economist of all things. I ended up getting teased by other students because they're like, well, there are no black people in economics. There's only old white guys. And they weren't wrong. All the dudes in, they were all old white guys. Okay. <laughs> so I ended up getting a uh, degree in poli sci. But when I was in college, Everyone around me was pursuing what made them, what was their interest. And this is why you get students with those big ass loans with art degrees. That's why that's, there is a disconnect in the messaging and what you should do going into school for American students. There just is. Yeah. I, I think, you know, and again, I feel like I have to constantly make disclaimers here because some of the things that I say, I think are probably borderline and stereotyping, but I think. Oh, gosh, I'm like cringing even as I say it. But but I will admit, you know, because I think a part of this conversation is also just being transparent and talking about some of the things that, that that may occur behind closed doors or conversations that maybe have behind closed doors. But when, if you look at some of the things uh, and some of my, my friends who are, are Asian, particularly Chinese, talk about their upbringing. And, you know, we speak about certain pr- professions that you are. Um, pushed into, quite honestly, like you're, you're you're not encouraged to explore. You may be pushed into certain things, um, and and in fact, some of them have have even personally shared with me that it borderlines, you know, on, on what they would con- consider like abusive at this point. Like goodness, like why can't I do these things? Why can't I be with my friends? Why can't I, you know, do some of the things that I enjoy? Um, but what they ultimately say is that you know it was because like. It was me. I was the ticket. I was the one that everyone was banking on and betting on. And I believe that obviously there's a lot of truth to that because I've heard uh, and seen very similar stories um, throughout my years. 
But I think that there's an element of that that's happening in Afro-Caribbean and uh, African communities that isn't happening nearly as much in African-American families. And so I think that is, is in part what is contributing to why we see such a disproportionate degree of Black people from those particular parts of the world uh, excelling far and beyond what Africans, uh, Americans are experiencing. And, and the last thing I'll say in that regard is, and this is also a bit of like skeletons in the closet, having had this conversation both in childhood and uh, in college, is that there's a belief that many of them are, are I don't want to say better, but are harder workers, right? So not only are they given different messaging, but I, I know uh, in my own experience and in the experience of many of my friends, that they are encouraged to work hard because they are mindfully aware of the fact that African-Americans will not do some of the things that they're willing to do. Uh, and a lot of those things are unfortunate. You could call it sort of intercultural you know, prejudices, uh, but I think these are the things, while they may be cringeworthy, I think are worthy of exploration um, and are contributors to some of the differences that we're seeing. I want to say something about the working as hard as the other. It is crazy to me that this is even a, a, an idea because of how hard I've seen Black Americans work. Like it, it's mm-hmm. crazy to me. But one of the things that I also thought about is when we traditionally, when people have gone into business for themselves, for example, in my observations, this is totally unscientific people before I say this, I find it very interesting. I found it very interesting that um, African-American businesses, like the highest percentage are in the healthcare space. I was doing some projects for a client and, and I needed some data. And the area where we were finding, uh, where we were founding uh, businesses was in healthcare. And I found that interesting because before what were we doing before was jobs of service, right? Mm-hmm. And so I think that some of what, what we've seen so far is just like generational patterns mm-hmm. that influence, even if we don't realize it, that influence the moves that we're making now. It's like everyone's working. Honestly, Americans work hard. We yep. are some crazy ass hardworking people. The data has shown actually that people are working harder doing work from home. Like the, the amount of productivity is just shot through the roof. Like Americans will work. Now is a very interesting time because of technology. You'll hear me say that I love and hate technology, but one of the things that I love about technology is that we are able to be educated and exposed to conversations like this one because it's very difficult to keep people from hearing my podcast. If you, if you have a cell phone, you can hear my podcast, right? And a lot of this information that used to be kind of behind the scenes, like conversations like this one, anyone could hear this, mm-hmm. right? And so now I love seeing the fact that you guys are talking about fire. I love seeing people talking about wage transparency, like all of these things that were impacting us that we knew, but, but maybe people were making us feel crazy about thinking that it was impacting us. And people are like, no, 
you know that chick Mercedes who hired that lady but didn't even give her more money? It's right. not, you know what I mean? Like, <laughs> God, Mercedes, that's bad oh, karma, man. But you know what I mean? Like there were all these things behind the scenes that have been impacting the conversations that we have, the mindset and and the outcomes. And this is part of the reason why I wanted to have this conversation is to admit that there are these there is a tension, but it, it, part of it is just people do what's comfortable, but also people don't know what they don't know. And I would love for you guys to talk about the role of technology and in sharing these reframed financial conversations that empower all of our communities in the same way. Yeah. I mean, I think when you think about technology and specifically, if we just focus on social media and eliminating gatekeepers of information, it has the opportunity to to accelerate the normal pace of progress. Right. So like there was a study um, going back to workplaces and why, you know, some industries advance further than others. You're absolutely right that a lot of Black Americans tend towards industries that have lower margins and lower career trajectories. But going back to the workplace, there was a study that said if companies started to take DEI actions and actually started to try to improve their workplace and make it more equitable, it would take 95 years for us to actually achieve wage equity at today's pace. 95 years. That's three generations, assuming a generation is about 30 years. Now, if a company decided to do best in class, as defined by what's available today, which isn't much, best in class DEI efforts, it would only take 25 years to achieve wage equity in the workplace for that particular company. But if you ignore all that and you don't wait on institutions to implement DEI policies and processes and org charts, and we just share information openly with each other about what kind of wages you should be asking for, how you should show up to interviews, what industries are hiring with high margins without requiring coding or additional certifications and degrees and advanced, you know, whatever education. Then we start to look at that 25 year mark and saying, all right, well, can we shrink it to 10 or 15, right? If we all commit to sharing what we learn, if we all commit to being good students and forming communities that are open and honest, we really don't have to wait on these institutions to get their shit together, right? We can just kind of do it. We can, we can bring out the best parts of democracy and do exactly what we did for work from home and remote positions during the pandemic for diversity, equity, and inclusion in the workplace, which is the first step to, you know, kind of closing that wealth gap and making sure that we earn what we, what we deserve. Could you, for those listeners who are like, what do you mean by best in class? Could you discuss that a little further? Yeah. So there's, um, I'll, I will send you a link to the survey or to the report once we get off the, off the call, but by best in class, they mean, are you following all of the best practices in the DEI space? So do you have accountability in your board? Do you have metrics? Are you committed to hiring people of color, people with different sexual orientations? Are you surveying your workplace on how they're feeling? Do you have any sort of measures in place to actually do this versus are you just kind of like saying it's important, but you don't actually have a strategy or a means of measuring progress? I want to finish up with just talking about solutions and ideas and just um, how we can be a lot more collaborative with one another 
as we move forward. So what are some of the actions that you think people should take in order to begin building generational wealth, regardless of where in the African diaspora you land in? I'll start. Mine is very pragmatic, but it is to believe the data, right? I will say specifically, Americans require a lot of evidence before they take on something as truth. And you can look back at all of the policy change in public safety and public health, where there was an enormous amount of data that cigarettes caused cancer before we decided to put that label on them. There was an enormous amount of deaths before we decided to make wearing a seatbelt a law. There was an enormous amount of babies who were dying you know, in the hospital before we started to take maternal health care very seriously. And the same is true for workplace and pay equity, particularly if you're a person of color or an African-American. So I would highly, highly, highly suggest that you don't just take your lived experience and the anecdotal stories of your friends and family in your network as the truth and actually start looking at the data to understand that even if you are in a good place career-wise, even if you're making the most money that you've ever made in your life, even if you just got your dream job, the likelihood that it's sustainable for you, the likelihood that you will continue to be promoted, the likelihood that you won't have a disruption in income is very, very low as a person of color and as an African-American person. That's not to say that you shouldn't be excited or that you shouldn't have a career at all. It's just to say that you have to really believe the data in order to have the motivation to build your own safety net. And safety nets is what we really need to make generational wealth a sustainable practice, right? You need to be able to not lose everything anytime there's an emergency or a disruption to your income. Ooh, that's deep. So uh, I'm like, I, I need a glass of wine with that. I know, Julian's going to come. He's going to be good cop now. I was bad cop. <laughs> no, but this this is why we have this conversation, right? So what does that look like? What does, what are those safety nets? What are, what are we, I mean, first we have the earnings issue and I live in a state that's getting penalized actually for this. So people won't even hire Coloradans because they're supposed to have, because we have a law that we didn't even realize we had until we started getting penalized for, for pay transparency and pay equity. So, so how do we do what you've just talked about? How do we build the, the safety net? I think it goes back to the, to the basics of personal finance. It goes back to spending less than you make. It goes back to not assuming that the money is always going to be this good or better and making sure that you don't succumb to lifestyle in, inflation. It's making sure that you pick investments that are diversified and not just extraordinarily risky or extraordinarily conservative. It's emergency funds. It's making sure that you're open to financial technology and new ways of, of building things and participating in emerging asset classes. It's, it's rethinking entrepreneurship and what you consider to be a small business owner and what that looks like. It's maybe picking up a side hustle. It's all of the things that we talk about in our content on a regular basis. I just think that it's framed as optional and we mm. really shouldn't be talking about it as optional if you are a person of color in America. And, and, and if you're in America, one of, the, one of the podcast episodes that I have been thinking about having, and, and it's likely I'm going to do it, is what it's like experiencing white poverty as a black person in a white city. Mm. And one of it is deep and it's deep for a couple of reasons. If 
if a system that has been created to empower and keep white people doing well is failing them, what do you think it's going to do for us? Right. Hmm. Right. You know? Yeah. Yeah. And that's a, oh, it's just a kick in the gut, but it, it's one of those things that I feel like over the years we've grown a, a bit increasingly tolerant of, right? After a while, we kind of do have to find something that feels good. Um, but um, to Kirsten's point, I mean, I think the underlying fundamentals of personal finance and wealth building are relevant for just about everyone. So I guess on the bright side, that is there, assuming you have the means, it's really just a matter of converting your income into income generating activities as opposed to just consuming it. Uh, so that the, the good news is those fundamentals for the vast majority of people, I think, are still relevant. Um, the only other thing that I would add is the importance of role modeling. And as much as we are curious um, and uh, about the role that culture and, and all these things play uh, in shaping our behaviors, I think when it comes to wealth building, particularly for people of color, we need to be mindful of the fact that the role models that we have may not necessarily, we may not necessarily have a cultural affiliation with them. Uh, and so we, we have to be willing to deal with that and say, okay, well, I may not, I, these people or that person may not necessarily be able to identify with all of the different things that impact the way uh, that I live my life, but I can, you know, we treat it like a buffet. I can pull these things from what they're saying and apply them in my life uh, and then sort of find that sense of cultural belonging elsewhere. You talk about income generating activities. What do you mean by that? Things For the like, person who's like, I, you guys are talking about some stuff, you're spilling some tea, you're sharing our behind the scenes conversations. And now you're talking about some other thing. I don't even know what you're talking about. What do you mean? Yeah, it's, it's the idea that when you, your income can be converted into buying things like assets that have the potential to create greater value for you in the future. So it could be that you start a business. It could be that you start several businesses. And by that, I don't mean a really complex operation. It could be that you sell products online. It could be that you are investing in real estate in any of the number of ways that that can be done from buying and holding to wholesaling, flipping, or even using online platforms. It could be as simple as continuing to invest consistently in our favorite investments, low cost index funds. And as your balance continues to grow, you start to welcome greater risk into your life and you start exploring uh, maybe individual stocks or specific sector stocks, uh, uh, mutual funds, or whatever it is that has a greater likelihood of return. But um, all of those things I think start with income. You have to have income to do all of those things. Uh, and so that's what I mean by, um, by what I mentioned earlier. You just mentioned income. Let's be very candid about what what kind of income should people be looking at to really transform transform their lives. That's a that's a hard question. Well, I, I I've given that some thought, and I I think you know because there are so many options out there. I think the one that you're best suited to take advantage of over the long term, right? So if you're committing to a ten year or fifteen year plan of building wealth then you should be paying attention to the income generating activities that best suits you. And by you, it could be, uh, these are the things that best align with my skill set, or these are the things that best align 
with some of the parameters that are limiting what's available to me. So it could be that you live um, in the South. Uh, and as a result, there are certain industries that are more likely to um, be relevant there. For example, a friend of mine is moving to Florida and we had a long conversation about, <laughs> uh, we had a long conversation about boat storage which is a oh. huge thing down there. I visited my brother not too long ago in Tampa and very similar to where you may see, let's say in middle America, public storage places in Florida, a lot of people are buying boats. The last few years have been really great to people. And I know several people personally who are buying boats. And so when you talk about being in places like Florida, they need a place to store those boats. And so as a result, there's an entire industry propping up around public boat storage. That may not necessarily be relevant for people in New York or in Colorado, but it's certainly relevant to people who may be in heavy boat communities. And so things like that, whatever is unique to you, what may be best served for you based on your geographic location, all of those things, uh, I think, play a role in you identifying and ultimately pursuing the wealth building activities that are going to pay off for you. I actually want to ask this question differently and much more pointedly. How much money do you think people need to be earning minimum to really uh, gain financial momentum? Like, I, I want to ask that question. That's a hard question. I mean, it depends on, on where you live because the cost of living is different, but I would say take your baseline living expenses and add 40 to 50% to it. You need, a, you need a big margin because these institutions aren't giving you one, right? You, you may not get a, stim a stimulus check from the government. You may not get paid time off from your workplace. You may get furloughed. Your health care system is going to send you a bill after they send it to insurance and insurance decides what they're going to pay. And so in order to, to cover all of that stuff and to stay afloat, you really need whatever the baseline cost of living is in your area, add 40 to 50% to it. I love this answer. I, I love that answer because it's, it's so honest about where our financial policy fails us here <laughs> yeah. and, and where we have to take up the slack. Yep. The financial I, I hesitate to give answers like that because automatically people assume that it has to be linear, right? They right. assume that, okay, that means I need, if I make 40,000, if I live off $40,000 now, Kirsten is saying I need to be making at least 60 Mm -hmm. in order to be okay. And people think like, okay, well, let me go find a job that makes $60,000 or let me figure out how to bring in an additional $1,500 a month or however the math works out. Mm -hmm. And they don't realize, or they, they eliminate the opportunities to make that kind of money, maybe three or four times a year. Maybe you have a seasonal business, or maybe you only side hustle in months that end in E. <laughs> that was a bad example. <laughs> I <know. laughs> no, I, I, I think, I think we, and again, we've given this quite a bit of thought, but it could also be little things like just embracing smaller streams of income right. that are passive, right? And I say this all the time. You could be the worst author in the world and still make like $2,500 selling an ebook. Right. You know what? You know, I love my ebooks. Yeah. I, yeah. I, and I know you're huge on ebooks, right? I'm sure all of them aren't crushing it. Maybe no. they are, but like, wouldn't if it doesn't cost you that much more time and energy like that's awesome you yeah. know what i mean like you could still know that hey there's a website out there and it's a form of digital real estate and there are multiple platforms out there that are promoting my stuff and every time i get 
traction on one thing, it sort of spreads out onto these other things. And ultimately, it all leads to another sprinkling of $5,000 or $10,000. That's enough to max out an IRA Mm -hmm. in some cases. Mm -hmm. And so it doesn't always have to be, to Kirsten's point, that what am I going to do to earn this $60,000 job? I think we need to start embracing some of these $2,500, $5,000, $10,000 smaller micro enterprise side hustle opportunities that all add up and contribute to creating that kind of financial cushion that people are looking for, that unfortunately jobs are in many cases unwilling or unable to provide. What are, we're wrapping things up. What, what are the things that you guys are doing to build your generational wealth and legacy for your little? Um, Do Do you have one or two kids? Just one. Just, okay. So for your little, like, what are you doing for him? I think this will be the first year that we actually pay him because um, he <laughs> certainly deserves to be uh, earning uh, some income. He's certainly part of the marketing activity for our brand. Let's just be honest. Uh, and I'm not saying that we, we do that intentionally, but I mean, he's a part of our family um, and we are certainly going to take advantage of every opportunity that we can to do that. And so things like opening up a custodial IRA are on the agenda this year that we're very excited about. Uh, for the last, I don't even know how many years, actually, well, it was the year he was born. So 2017, we opened up a college 529 plan for him. And, you know, I I would say a lot of the long-term wealth building activities that we're doing right now are really with him in mind. And they're largely centered around intellectual property and making sure that the deals that we sign uh, that may be equity-based or, you know, things like that, they have the potential to live on for the foreseeable future. Uh, even if it's small, what they call mailbox money, it's an opportunity to, um, to to earn income that doesn't necessarily require him or us to lift a finger. What's the conversation like about money for him? Like, how, how will you talk to him about career choices and what he, when he comes to you and he's like, dad, mom, this is what I'd like to do. What, what's that conversation look like? And I get, he's little, he's yeah. little now. I'm, <laughs> listeners, I'm pushing them on a conversation that's probably seven, eight years out, but still what's that look like? Yeah. It's interesting because I don't know. It goes back to Julian's point in terms of role modeling and what he's been able to see from us. He's seen us more than I saw my parents growing up. Right. on a daily basis than like by a long shot. I told you he, I was watching Donahue by myself. Right? <laughs> right. <laughs> he comes home and both of us are here right. and, you know, we take him to grandma. He sees his grandparents several times a, a month, a week in, in some cases. And like, he just has a very different experience. And so the kinds of questions he's going to ask are going to be very different. He's going to come with a baseline built in understanding of how money is made that doesn't involve mommy and daddy going to a cubicle every day. Mm -hmm. And so the kinds of questions that he's going to ask are going to be very different. I think he's going to inherently do the things that make him happy and do the things that he's passionate about because that's what he sees us do every day. So then it's going to be a question around like, do I even want to monetize this? How should I, what's the smart way to do it? you know, should I go this route or this route? Like, it's going to be very specific and we don't have to do that hurdle of like, you know, you don't have to get a job (laughs) that you don't like. That Mm. part's already kind of modeled for him. So I don't know. I I look forward to them though. I look forward to when he does, you know, start asking questions. Could you guys talk a little bit more about your book and what we should expect? And I'm very excited about your book. 
So our book is called Cashing Out, Win the Wealth Game by Walking Away. And it is what we're calling the definitive guide to career and personal finance for Black professionals. And it's really broken up into two parts. Part one is just talking about the daily struggle, talking about our experiences at work, having talking about what it feels like to internalize messages and normalize messages like we got to work twice as hard for half mm-hmm. as much, mm-hmm. talking about how normal it is for us to look up at an org chart and not see anybody that's like us. Meanwhile, the company is talking about diversity and inclusion. So we go (laughs) through all of that. We go through the major mindset shifts that people need to make in order to even pursue something like financial independence. And then in part two, we get very specific around investments and how you should manage your career and how you should begin to find your community And then to your point about income earning opportunities, we give a framework on how to think about how to make extra money. We ask people to walk through the trade-offs that they need to make between, you know, urgency and upside. How much money do you need to make and how quickly do you need to make it? It's one of those things where, like we said at the very beginning of the episode, if you can tap into the right motivation, people will actually begin to do the things that they already know to do. But so much of personal finance skips over the part that that matters for people of color. And we wanted to make sure that we addressed the actual reason for doing this beyond just the very big terms of generational wealth and racial wealth gap, all these things that seem very much out of our control. The real reason is because nobody's going to have your back like you have your back. So, right. so do that. <laughs> like You have my permission. If you were looking for permission, take my permission to have your own back because they ain't got you. Oof. And this is my last question. Literally, I'm going to have to lay down and think about this whole interview because <laughs> <laughs> um, it's just, I really appreciate this conversation. When people bring up that they're really frustrated, like they're frustrated with lack of opportunities, they're frustrated that they can't seem to earn more, or they're just frustrated that, like you said, they're working in as a professional and they can tell that they're never going to be promoted upwardly, but it's always going to be lateral, right? Mm-hmm. Um, I might be that person saying that. Mm-hmm. What are your thoughts and what's what's a piece of advice you would share for that person who's who's like, look, I'm I'm that person in the family that everyone's depending on and I'm trying and my capacity is just shot. What can you do to support me or what advice do you have to support me in this this transition because it's very much a mental it's very head head trippy to sit there and be like you know what this isn't working anymore when I quit my job at the end of 2014 I was I was just so angry I was so angry because I felt like I'd done all this work and I was never I was never really going to financially benefit from all the work that I'd done and that my life was just a series of getting on the highway and commuting back and forth. Like that was it. And I was like, this sucks. And I'd lived in Europe before and I'd seen something different. And I was like, that's what I want. I I want time and flexibility and I want to make money. And is that even possible in America? Give me some advice for those who, who are on that, that uh, who are at that turning point. I think it's really about where to put that frustration. Um, And so you can hold on to that. And um, as we know, a lot of people do, it can be something that you revisit um, when you're working out, which is something that I would literally do. I remember being on the treadmill, being upset uh, and frustrated at what was happening at work and using that as motivation to stay on 20 minutes longer. But I find that to be a bit of an unsustainable fuel. I think 
taking that frustration and, and, and applying it to investing, quite honestly. You have to be able to recognize where you're getting a greater return. You can take all of these great ideas, all of your well-spokenness, all of your positive energy, all of your ideas, all of those things, and continue to pour it into work in exchange for nothing, maybe a promise um, or a marginal increase in pay, which after you know inflation uh, and cost of living adjustments is still short of what you'd hope for, or you can take all of that energy and you can apply it into other things that don't have nearly as many complications and have a proven track record of producing incredible results, which is what we've seen in the stock market. Uh, and so that would be my advice for those people is to take all of that energy and funnel it into saying, I am going to make investing at a higher level, a greater priority in my life. And the second piece of advice that I would say, and this is likely only going to be relevant for a handful of people, but I think embracing the creator economy, which is this new term, I guess, more professional term to describe in part what we do around being influencers and brand partnerships and those sorts of things, uh, I have found to be incredibly lucrative. Uh, and they don't have nearly as many linear, <laughs> I would say, chains uh, or restrictions to income growth as you experience in the workplace. The things that I get asked to do for thousands of dollars are night and day in comparison to what I would have to do years ago. We tell a story in our book around what it would cost us emotionally uh, and physically and mentally to earn an extra $10,000 just a few years ago. Mm. And now those are things that we get, you know, in our inbox, arguably every week. And so these are things that are real. Um, they're not immature or, you know, unsophisticated. They're lucrative, they're professional, um, and they are poised for growth. And so, um, you know, if they're listening to you, then I'm sure they can find tons of ideas or they can take advantage of doing this. Uh, they can follow us. But I'm telling you, the creator economy is very real um, and it's seen remarkable growth over the last five years. And it's an economy that goes beyond just the creator. Like when people say creator economy, they think about the person in front of the camera. Right. But the reality is it's a full industry. There are lots and lots and lots and lots of behind the scenes positions and roles. Yep that are equally as lucrative, maybe not equally as lucrative, but like substantially lucrative yep. that aren't like standing in front of a camera. So to Julian's point, don't dismiss the new industries that are being created as a result of, you know, the changes that are happening in our country. Uh, I will say that today I got a brand sponsorship payment and I would highly agree <laughs> and I'm good for the month like yeah and it was a about four hours of work when it's yeah. all said and done and I'm literally good for the month yeah and to your point about fitness when you were working out Julian I knew it was time to go when I would get this is very Colorado um so normally it's very normal to go work out during lunch okay and I worked near the mountains so I would go to yoga or whatever. But my last year I would go for like two hour hikes. <laughs> I would just go and I would, and my student assistants, and I'm still friends with a lot of them. So they, we've had these conversations recently and I, and I would just be gone for like two hours because I was just so stressed out and tired. Mm -hmm. And that was like 
my way of managing my mood and my anger and trying to focus. And I would legit, it would be about 1130. I'd be like, you know what? I'm going to go hike in Chautauqua because that's the park. And I would just like hike around mm-hmm. <laughs> and then I would come back two hours and they couldn't say anything because I did so much work yeah, and, right. I was, and I was salaried. So they, they didn't say anything because I got it done, but I was like, I hate you all. And I'm pissed <laughs> off. And, and it was confusing because in education, I was in higher education. Most people will work their entire careers in, in the same university. Right. Mm-hmm. And so I was mad because it was like, I don't understand how you guys can do this. You guys are moving up and like, I was just mad. So I would go hike for hours. And um, finally, one day I was like, you know what? I got to go. So I did. (laughs) (laughs) Thank you guys so much for this conversation. I really would love to talk to you forever because I'm so, I've just enjoyed it so much. Um, For people who would like to follow what you're doing, buy your book, I will have that information in the show notes as well. Is there any last piece of advice? Oh, actually, there's one other thing I do want to talk about very quickly. How much do people need to be investing? There are people who are like, I don't have a lot of money and they're overwhelmed by this idea, this idea of investing and maybe don't realize that they can invest with a really small amount. Share your thoughts and then we're done. I think everyone's different. Um, I, I don't know how to answer that question <laughs> as much as you can. Honestly, okay. you know, I, I am a big fan. I forget what we used to call it, but it was like imp, um, impulsive investing. You know, yeah. make that a part of your 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 day to day. What's if impulsive I, investing? Well, it's the same as if, if it's the same as impulse if, shopping. Like yeah. if you were if you were at Amazon at Target and they're about to pick up something that you know everybody jokes going to Target for one thing and you end up with eighteen. Hey, hey, you can put it in your cart and then <laughs> leave it. Yeah, and take that same amount of money that you were about to spend and uh-huh. actually impulse invest. You, like you wouldn't go think on twice about it. If, yeah. if if one of your best friends popped in from college today and said, "Hey, I'm only in town for one night," you would move things around and go out to eat. If you were having a great conversation and they said, "Let's have another round," you wouldn't think twice about ordering that other round because you enjoy that. And so, again, very similar to that frustration that you feel. Take that same energy when you have extra money. I don't care if it's that you found in the couch, or if you're like me, there's cash sitting in some cargo shorts (laughs) that you only break out during the warm months and you (laughs) look in your pocket and it's like, oh, look at that. Mm -hmm. God is good. Take that money and invest it. Make that a regular habit of yours. And the more you do that, the more your money will work for you and you will have a greater uh, number of options available to you than you have today. I hate to ask this last question. I'm so sorry. (laughs) I'm so sorry. I, I, I don't know why I didn't ask this earlier. What are, what are your thoughts about people's enthusiasm around crypto? I, I will say this. In 2014, I forget where we went on vacation. I think it was Aruba. If we decided not to go to Aruba that year uh, and invested that money instead, we would have like an extra $300,000. In crypto. In crypto, Whoa. right? And we, we knew back then, we're like, you know, but we were like, I don't know what this is. This is weird. Uh, and so listen, I think it's it's real. I think it's, it's also real unstable. Um, <laughs> but when you have enough, whatever that number is for you, uh, if you can afford to, again, take an impromptu trip to Aruba, you might be able to make an impromptu or impulsive investment in something. And it's just like I said earlier, the more you have, the more you should be 
willing to accept or even welcome risk in your life. Um, and the longer you can hold on to it, assuming there are some underlying fundamentals. And at this point, I think it's a bit undeniable that it is an asset class that is real and may be here for a while. I think they should be, um, I think it's fair to say that people are excited by it, but I certainly don't think it should be the foundation of anyone's fin- financial plan. All right, everyone. I loved this conversation. I cannot wait to share it with everyone. I am super excited about everything that Julian and Kirsten are doing. I want them to have their Netflix show and um, say, hey, Netflix. And you guys, I just am so excited to see all that you're working on and am proud of all your success. Oh, thank you. Same to you. Same to you. I have to admit that after I sat down and edited this episode, there were still some things that I wish I'd said during my conversation with Kirsten and Julian. I wish that I had talked about the financial apartheid that has impacted African-American generational wealth in the form of systems such as redlining, lack of easy access to banks, and banking products such as mortgages. I wish I'd brought up how African-Americans would buy homes and unknowingly be in a contract versus a mortgage and would lose their home if they paid late one time. I wish that I had brought up the fact that my grandma worked as a forklift driver in the plant that she worked at doing the hard thing that erroneously many immigrant families seem to believe that African-Americans won't do. I was actually baffled by that. Or the fact that African-American women are the most educated population per capita in the U.S., but also the most to be impacted by the current student loan crisis, and the fact that we won't probably get student loan forgiveness impacts a vast majority of the Black women that you know in and around your hometown and in your community. I wish that we had discussed more about how other people, such as the infamous Mercedes of the, I paid a candidate less because they didn't negotiate better, and it's a life lesson that I'm teaching them, candidate. I wish we'd talked about how those kinds of situations impact our money, and we don't even know that we're being schooled on a thing because we had no idea. Ultimately, though, I want listeners to leave with the following thoughts and action steps in mind. It's acceptable and necessary to have a how much will I earn conversation as it relates to your future or current career and the amount that you're investing in terms of time and student loans if that's what you're going to do. Also, you can absolutely earn more and have joy at the same time. It doesn't need to be an either or proposition. But how you craft a career that you love that pays more is a very important internal conversation that you need to have with yourself and with a mentor or or mentors who can help guide you as you go out there in the world with your career. And by the way, this could also include someone who is in the late stages of their career. If it's possible for you to work on a side project leveraging the internet, do. Julian Kirsten and myself are all part of the creator economy, and I can't emphasize this enough, as as did Julian and Kirsten. There are so many opportunities to be had out in the digital space. The possibilities are endless, and the upside for future earnings is unlimited. It is a long-term process, though. It's not short and quick. 
learn about investing and how to simplify the process so that you can stick with it over time. I love fintech for this reason. There's a lot of tools out there right now to make this type of wealth building a habit and easy for you to stick to. Learn about crypto. I'm not saying you have to invest in it yet. In fact, in my view, 20 years from now will still be the infancy of, for perspective, think about this. Credit cards were created in the 1950s. It's 2022. And how many credit card products are there right now? Thousands. So it's my thought that crypto will be the same. There will be all these different projects and things that are created throughout the years. Spend your time educating a educating yourself about crypto. Think about it as an asset class versus a currency and hold on to it for the long run. Only invest what you can lose or do not need in the short run. In my case, I only invest the equivalent of what I call coffee money and leverage a debit card that actually earns rewards back in crypto. I literally buy coffee and fund things with that card understanding that I'm earning crypto back over, you know, for my purchases. I buy a lot of coffee, so it actually is a really good way to leverage this benefit. And that's through Coinbase. I'm an affiliate. I will share a link in the show notes. If you're in the position to connect someone with information on how to earn more and do better in their career financially, do. It's not a, it's not even something you have to think hard about. Do it. Don't be like Mercedes. My last thought is that this weird pseudo competition across the African diaspora is totally unnecessary and completely unhelpful. It's 2022 and African-Americans and other marginalized communities are still literally fighting for the right to vote in the United States. Let me say that again. It is 2022 and African-Americans and other marginalized folks are still fighting for the right to vote in the United States. It's not that we can't vote, it's that there are a lot of systems that are being set up to impede our access to voting. And currently, there is an entire political party who's voting against our ability to have access. Think about that. African-Americans have been fighting for years for equal access and many of the benefits that immigrant communities have experienced upon arrival has been paid for with our blood. I really wish more people would think about that. And ultimately, at the end of the day, we're all in this together. If you win, so do I. I am not competition with someone from Jamaica or from some other Caribbean place or from Africa. Like I want all of us to win. I want my allies to win. Like, why wouldn't I? We're in this together. I guess that's the piece I want to leave with. I really hope you enjoyed this episode of Michelle is Money Hungry. Please do support Julian and Kirsten. Pre-order their book as well as my own, Not a Financial Unicorn. Let me know what you thought about this episode. What are your thoughts? What are your thoughts? Um, we needed a whole year of just talking about this topic. So. Thank you again for listening, and I hope you enjoyed the show. Thank you.